0: Amen. All right. Good morning, everybody. If you have a Bible, let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We are continuing our steady walk through this New Testament letter that Paul wrote to a church much, much smaller than us. And uh, we will be in this letter for the balance of the summer, probably through August. As you're finding 1 Thessalonians as we always say, if you're maybe visiting with us uh, and you don't have a Bible, we, I really encourage you to use one of the Bibles that you can find in the chair rack in front of you. And if you do not own a Bible, you're, you're welcome. In fact, you're encouraged to keep that Bible for yourself. Let that be our gift to you. And I, I think even though we'll have the Scriptures up on the screen, and I think this applies to everybody, whether you're used to looking up passages in the Bible or not, I think you'd be really helped to follow along for yourself in your Bible And we're going to read a lot of scripture today And we're going to have them on the screen But I think you'd be helped to anchor yourself down there In 1 Thessalonians where we'll be We're going to start towards the end of chapter 2 And work our way through the first five verses of chapter 3 As you're finding that Let me just remind you that this Wednesday We will continue our third of four sessions in the summer For our midweek fellowship uh, This particular Wednesday night We will be looking at And we've been looking at uh, theology and doctrine surrounding the end of the age, the end times. This word eschatology is sort of the field of study theologically that we're looking at. Esca meaning the last things or the end times. And this particular Wednesday night, we're going to zero in on the question of what happens when a believer dies. What happens when you die? Uh, as we await for Jesus' return, I think there's lots of misunderstanding of that in the church. We don't just float away at sort of disembodied spirits with white robes on a harp or on a cloud playing a harp. But there's some spectacular promises in the Scriptures that I think will really encourage us. So we'll look at that this, this Wednesday night. We'd love for you to be here. We eat, and then we come in here at 630 and, and work through a lot of Scripture. Well, as we get into this text, we left off on verse 16 last week. We're going to pick back up in verse 17 of chapter 2 and work our way through chapter 3, verse 5. In just a moment, I'm going to pray, and instead of reading the whole thing and then working back through it, we're just going to read and stop and read and stop and work our way through this text. And then there's, there's really a, two truths that I want us to see. In this text. There's the role of Satan, our enemy, and then there is this truth about God's utter control. And then finally we want to look at our response to the combination of these two truths that oftentimes seem to be very confusing and hard to put together. But what is Satan's role and how is God in control of all things? But here's why I love this text this morning, because In this text, as we work through it before we get to looking at Satan and his role on earth and God's utter control, this text, I think, gives us a picture of Paul's wonderful, just soft and tender heart for the people, for the church at Thessalonica that he planted. And in the middle of this warm pastoral heart that we see beating out of Paul's chest, we also see this incredibly rich and and difficult theological issue of evil and Satan and yet God's control. So this this text is like it's, it's for our heart. There's something I want us to feel, but it's for our head. There's some, something that I want us to, to think about and engage with our minds. And I, I think that's the way Christians should live their lives. It shouldn't just be all feeling, because if you do that, then you'd end up being a weirdo that runs around with tambourines and, you know, flags and stuff and I'm sorry, I offended somebody, but you know what I'm talking about. And if you're all thinking and you're just all theological and you don't have any passion and heart to you, then you become like dry and rigid and cranky and mean. And this text, we see both of those things mixed together in this beautiful combination. So I want us to, I want us to work with our heart and our head this, this morning. Let's pray before we read. Father, as we, as we engage your holy and completely true and breathed out from you, word, I pray that you would warm our hearts towards you, towards one another, towards your work, and I pray that you would engage and stimulate our minds, press on us, cause us to think deeply, challenge our preconceived notions and our presuppositions and our worldly assumptions. I pray for anybody in this room that is not yet trusting in Christ and Lord surely there are some in this room I pray that by your kind and sovereign grace you would give them the very thing that, they requi- that you require of them which is faith they cannot muster it on their own you must give it to them we as, as the created are completely dependent on the creator and so Lord I plead that you would give life and faith, and ears to hear to people that walked into this room spiritually deaf and dead to you. Give them life so that they can believe. And then for Christians in this room, Lord, I pray that you would encourage us, embolden us, soften our hearts, make us more like Jesus for your glory and our joy. And I pray these things in his name, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, let's, let's start reading in chapter 2, verse, verse 17. Remember the context, Paul has planted this church, uh, and we read about how he planted the church in Acts chapter 17. He was only with the Thessalonians for about a month, which was a very short time compared to how much time Paul spent with some of the other churches that he planted in Acts, in the book of Acts that we read about. And he was torn away from them because of a dispute that rose up in Thessalonica because of the preaching of the gospel, and the church there began to be persecuted by some Gentiles and some Jewish people who had not yet trusted in Christ. And so they thought it wise for Paul to leave, to sort of quell the the discord. And then Paul goes on to several other cities. At this time, probably about a year later, he's in the city of Corinth, and he's planting the Corinthian church and dealing with that mess of the Corinthian church. But he's concerned about the Thessalonians because he... Wasn't able to spend much time with them and teach them all that he wanted to teach them. And so he sends Timothy, his fellow worker, who was with him when he planted the church in Thessalonica, back to Thessalonica to check on them and give him an update on how they're doing. And so he did that. Timothy has done that. And now Timothy has brought a report back to Paul, which has mostly encouraged Paul But has also concerned him a bit because he realizes that the Thessalonian church that he was only able to spend a month with is enduring persecution because of their turning from their idols and in faith to Christ. And so he's writing um, an encouragement to them. And one of the things that he's doing in this letter, which we'll read about, is he is refuting his opponents in Thessalonica who were criticizing Paul for having left so early and saying, oh, well, he's not a true man of God, and so he is in a sense defending himself against these false accusations from these people who are wanting to discredit his ministry. So verse 17 says, but since we were torn away from you brothers for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. I just want you to notice that little phrase there, those two words torn away. The the original language there is this word that literally means to be orphaned. And I want you to get a, a sense of the the depth of Paul's love for the Thessalonian church. Even though he only spent a month with them, he, he is speaking in familial language, the language that would be between brothers and sisters or a parent and a child. And he's saying that we 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 were torn away from each other. In other words, you were orphaned from me. What a beautiful picture of what the church is intended to be, that even after just a month, there was this sort of heartstring that developed between Paul and these people that he would feel like they were family, closer even than his own biological family. And isn't that just kind of the way it is? I mean, they're... I can remember a month or so ago going to Uganda and instantly there's just this bond of the spirit that happens when God's people are together even though they're from different cultures from different countries they speak different languages just instantly we all sense this 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 clear truth that we have something you know united together in Christ unlike any like any other relationship on this earth in fact I felt closer to those Ugandan brother and sisters than, than I did even my own family that are not trusting in Christ. And I think there's some some things that we need to think about here. I think that we as American Christians rightly emphasize the biological family and the importance of the biological family. but We should be careful not to make an idol out of the biological family that would discourage people who are Christians who don't have their biological family with them in church. Friends, there is something, listen to me, single person, or listen to me, couple, that maybe is not able to have children. There is something far, far greater than marriage. There's something far, far greater than than biological procreation of children, as wonderful as those two things are. If in God's sovereignty you do not experience either one of those things, you are not missing out on anything. God is gracious, and there is a family that he has called people to. It is so, so rich and eternal and beautiful. And I think we as a a church um, should should see that, that truth. Let's keep going. Verse 18. He says there that we wanted to see you face to face in verse 17, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again. Now listen to this. But Satan... Hindered us. I mean, we've just been cruising along in 1 Thessalonians. It's kind of been going well, like all of a sudden. Yeah. Whoa! But Satan hindered us. What did Paul mean by that? This text doesn't tell us much about what the specifics were. Some speculation, some possibilities. Maybe Paul was talking about the uh, opposition that the Thessalonians were facing, the, the, uh, the people there in Thessalonica that. Um, made kind of a legal ban of Paul to come back to Thessalonica. Maybe, I don't know, or Thessalonica. Maybe Paul was talking about his thorn in the flesh that we read about later in 2 Corinthians. Maybe he had some physical ailment that that was deterring him from coming back to the Thessalonians. We don't know. Maybe Paul is is attributing the mess that he was currently dealing with in the Corinthian church as being the thing that prevented him from going back to minister to the Thessalonians. And so he's referring to this mess that he's currently dealing with as the means that Satan was using to hinder him from going back and and continue his his work with the Thessalonians. We don't know. All we know is that whatever's going on, Paul is clearly attributing it to not just sort of happenstance or random events, but he is clearly, and we need to take notice of this, because there's lots of times in the Bible when Paul is talking about something in the New Testament, he just kind of says, well, this happened, and so we went this way. But this time, Paul just kind of comes out with it and says, Satan hindered us. What's going on there? More on that later. Verse 19. Now you see this heart of Paul. For what is our hope? or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his, at his coming is it not you for you are our glory and joy So notice the the picture here that Paul, the language here is that Paul is speaking about this crown, which was, you know, you've seen those Olympic wreaths, you know, the old Greek style, sort of the the olive branch, sort of uh, crown, but that's the picture here that Paul is is laying this this crown before the Lord, the conquering king who's coming back. It's like Paul is is laying his trophy saying, this is what I did for you, this is what I was a what I was about while you were away, and, and here now, conquering king, here's, here's sort of what I have accomplished for you. And, and just this picture that Paul is saying that that your progress in the faith, Thessalonians, with the fact that you are standing firm, that Paul is saying, I take great joy in that. I mean, just, let's just take that in as individualistic Americans who we, we are sort of naturally bent to, to make it all about what we can get. And Paul's joy was all wrapped up in somebody else's progress in the faith. And I, I just think that's a beautiful picture. And let's not just say, oh, well, he was the Apostle Paul, so... Um. You know, that's expected of him. I'm just a regular ordinary Christian in Columbus, Georgia. No, I think these things, these sentences like this are in the Bible to give us a picture, not just of a singular heart of one man for a particular group of people, but to sort of press on us and say this should be our, our heart for one another. And for instance, when I'm so encouraged as I read this, I just started to think about Like, I see this in our church, and it thrills my soul. I can remember being in Uganda and a young lady on our trip. I won't mention any names because I don't want to, like, steal her, you know. Well, she'd be embarrassed. She's going to be mad at me anyway because some of you are going to decipher who this is. But she was in Uganda, and she's a youth leader. And from Uganda, one of the girls that's in her small group, a teenager, she calls this girl from Uganda— to just wish her a happy birthday because she's a youth leader and this young adult who's in her mid-twenties, her heart is just bound up in the progress of the faith of this young teenager in the youth group. I see this in, in men and women caring for one another. I see this in military families and wives coming around one another where their primary motivation is other people caring for one another. And friends, that is so beautiful and it's so biblical and it's so Christ-like. And there's so much joy to be had when we care little about our own needs and we are focused on other people's needs. It's so beautiful and I see, I see this growing in our church and I'm so encouraged by it. But it is not easy. It's not easy, is it? embedded in this type of life together and this type of joy are a thousand difficult and hard conversations. One of the best things that we can do for one another is develop this sort of grit and emotional tenacity where our conversations and our lives together go beyond just sort of social pleasantries and we care and we deeply care for one another and each other's growth in Christ. Charles Spurgeon loved John Bunyan, and John Bunyan was a Puritan back in the 1600s, and John Bunyan wrote the most read and published book in the English world other than the Bible, and that book is The Pilgrim's Progress. And it is an allegory, it's it's an allegorical tale of the Christian life, and there are all these these characters that come along that represent something, that help Christian— Help, help the, the pilgrim, or, and in the second book, Christiana, Christian and then his wife, Christiana, make it through life to heaven. And one of the characters in the second book is this character named Mr. Greatheart, whose mission is to just care for and help other Christians. In this particular case, this character, Christiana, to the heavenly, you know, celestial shore. And listen to what Spurgeon's. Speaks about his own sort of heart for his people, and I see this in our church. Just, just listen to this quote from Spurgeon, and let your heart be warmed and convicted that that what it would look like in a church if if everybody just resolved to have this type of to care for one another. Spurgeon says, "I am occupied in my small way, as Mister Greatheart was employed in Bunyan's day. I do not compare myself with that great champion, but I am in the same line of business." I am engaged in personally conducted tours to heaven, and I have with me at the present time dear old Father Honest. I'm glad he is still alive and active. And there is Christiana, and there are her children. Just picture this: this sort of tour conductor, Mr. Greatheart, bringing these people along to meet with God. He says, "It is my business, as best I can, to kill dragons and cut off giants' heads and lead on the timid and trembling." I am often afraid of losing some of the weaklings. I have the heartache for them, but by God's grace and your kind and generous help in looking after, after one another, I hope we shall all travel safely to, to the river's edge. Oh, how many I have had to part with there. I have stood on the brink and I have heard them singing in the midst of the stream. And I have almost seen the shining ones lead them up the hill and through the gates into the celestial city. Do you see what Spurgeon is talking about there? And he's talking about Mr. Greatheart, who had this heart that we just, he cared so much for other people that he's willing to fight for them and he's, he's afraid of losing some of the weaklings and he has the heartache for them. But by God's grace and the kind help of other Christians, we're looking after one another and that's what we see in this text for Paul. Oh, that God would give us more and more of this type of heart for one another where we're not critical and we're not, we're not easily angered. You know what? You know, if I could just say that I think one of the real—I um, think one of the real weaknesses of modern-day American Christians is how easily perturbed we are. How, how easily we're just angered and frustrated. And how—are you a grumpy Christian? Are you? Do things rattle you easily? Ah, that God would free us of our grumpiness. Amen. All right. (laughs) Chapter 3. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel to establish and exhort you in your faith. That word in verse 2 where he says that Timothy was God's co-worker I mean, that's a phrase, isn't he? In fact, the, the early scribes, when we have all of these manuscripts of the New Testament, some of them had so much trouble with that word, because like, it felt like it was sort of reducing Timothy to be like on the same plane of God, that they actually changed the word, I think incorrectly, but that was a, like a controversial word there in Bible translation. I think this is the, the correct translation, but just a mind-blowing way, I want us to see that Paul describes Timothy and I think would would be a description of every Christian who cares about other people, is that they are God's co-worker. Verse 3, that that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. Okay, so let's take in and remember, he said, Satan hindered us. Verse 3, he says, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Just one one thing I want us to see there quickly before we look at Satan's role and how God is in control. Notice there that Paul is clearly attributing these afflictions and these sufferings to the sovereign work of God. And he is teaching the people to expect suffering, trial, and affliction. And these things are clearly part of the life of a Christian in the Bible. Jesus himself, John 16, verse 33, he says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Paul, uh, the, uh, Luke writes about Paul and his ministry in Acts chapter 14 when he was going around there. It says that he was strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Paul is teaching us and the church here that all of these afflictions, all of these things, even as we're going to see in a moment, this hindering of Satan is not outside of God's sovereign control. They don't come to God's people. They don't come to us randomly or by chance or without purpose. So then let's look now as we end our time together. It's these two, I think, truths that we see butting up against one another in this text, and then we'll look at our response. One is Satan's role. What is Satan's role? From the text, we see that Paul is clearly attributing this hindering to Satan. What is Satan's role? A few thoughts from the Bible. One is that he is the enemy of God and his people. Jesus says in John chapter 8, you are of your father the devil. When he was criticizing some of the Uh, religious Jews who did not believe in him and were leading people away from Jesus. You are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. 1 Peter 5, verses 8, 9, and 10. Listen to this, and in particular, listen to this young men who I have such a burden for, who oftentimes are so ignorant and naive and so careless in the way they lead their lives and the things that they expose themselves to, and I know that because that was me. 1 Peter 5, verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary the devil Prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So clearly, Peter is telling us here that the devil is our adversary on the prowl, seeking to destroy God's people. And he is our accuser. In fact, this word Satan is a Hebrew word from the Old Testament that literally means accuser. And we see this all the way at the end of the Bible in Revelation 12, verse 10. The disciple John saying this, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our br- brothers, that Satan has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. So, one clearly we see, and I think we all instinctively know this, Satan's role. In this universe is that he is the enemy of God and of his people but I also want you to see and this is so important right after we say that point number two here under Satan's role is that he is limited by God in fact he is the Bible says it. he's on a leash so in Job chapter 1 famous Old Testament book I won't take the time to flip there and read it but we have this scene Where Job, where God is in heaven, his heavenly court with his angels, and Satan sort of sneaks in, right? And he kind of gets in the crowd there. And God brings up Job and says, Have you considered my servant Job? So everything that we're going to read about in the next 42 chapters of Job and how Satan did all of this horrible stuff to Job, God is the one who sovereignly initiated the possibility that Satan would even be allowed to do these things. Friends, that is, that is humbling, that is mind-blowing, and we have to take that in. Right? This is not sort of like dualism where God's got 50% strength and Satan's got 50% strength and they battle it out. God is so sovereign that he's not reacting to the devil's plans. He's bringing stuff up for his minion, the devil, to do to work somehow according to his sovereign plan. Do you see that? We see it in the New Testament. In Luke chapter 22, we see Satan having to ask Arrogantly, but having to ask to do things to God's people. Jesus, speaking to Simon Peter before his, his denial of Jesus, he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. Now, that's, there's arrogance in that approach to God, no doubt, but he has to ask. He has to ask God if he can do this to, to Simon Peter. And then we see in Jude 6, and I love this because it's just this picture of of Satan on a leash, Jude 6, which gives us this picture of the fall of, of Satan and the other fallen angels even before the creation of Adam and Eve. And it says, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority. So this is the angelic rebellion after the creation of the universe, before Adam and Eve, They did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So friends, take that in, that Satan's on a leash. Now, albeit at times, it is a long leash. And he, I'm not saying that to minimize anything that he does in this world today. He wreaks havoc. Ephesians chapter 2 says that he is the prince of the power of the air. And he is at work in the sons of disobedience, which is, is Paul's phrasing in Ephesians chapter 2 for people that are not trusting in Christ. So Satan is at work, but he is at work. He is limited by God who has even allowed him to exist and fall and do these things. And then finally, I'm so encouraged by this, Satan's role. Third point under that is that he's a servant to God's purposes. Listen to Proverbs 16:4 and let it be a worldview-defining verse for you. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. So God is so sovereign in such a way that we cannot fully explain that evil Satan, all catastrophe did not sneak up on him, but somehow in a way where God is not culpable, he's not guilty, he's not capricious, he's not evil, but in some good, fatherly, wise, eternal, hidden from us way, God is uses these things which he allows and permits and even ordains for his purpose. Now, let's just admit, let's just come up for air right now. Are you having trouble with this? Is this as hard? Yes. Right? Yes, it is. But every time I, I, I wrestle with these truths, I always want to think, what's the alternative The alternative to this biblical clear worldview is that somehow Satan is, you know, occasionally gets the best of God who needs to go back to the battery power charger and charge himself back up and get his lightsaber going again so that he can battle Darth Vader on the bridge, you know? And maybe this time he'll, I don't know, I'm I'm sure I got that analogy wrong. Every time I venture into the movie scene, I get emails of how I messed it up. But you guys get my point. That the alternative... See, some of you are are scared by this picture. That's not the way God is. That's not the way God is. But the only alternative to this is to view God as somehow weak and in a competition with Satan where he barely wins in the end. Friends, that's not the biblical picture. And I want you to be buoyed and encouraged and emboldened. And I want us to have steel in our spine as we see a God who is far far bigger than a cute little painting or a pithy little verse or a a little thing on the side of a coffee cup. He is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. So that is Satan's role. Now let's look at God's utter and complete control. How does God's sovereignty and providence intersect with the existence of Satan and evil, and how Satan hinders God's people. So God's control. First, his control is utter and exhaustively complete. I just read it, Psalm 115, or I just quoted it, verse 3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Listen to Isaiah 46, verses 8 through 11. God is speaking to his people, speaking to the nation of Israel, and to the Babylonians, to the Persians, whoever is chastising God's people at that time. He's speaking to all creation here. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose calling a bird of prey from the east the man of my counsel from a far country I have spoken and I will bring it to pass I have purposed and I will do it God says now listen to what God says through a pagan God-hating king who conquered God's people and dragged them off into captivity, this man named Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4. Then God roughs up Nebuchadnezzar, shows him his power, and this is the realization that the unbelieving, God-hating, former pagan, Nebuchadnezzar comes to when he sees that God can do whatever he wants. This man who very likely was the most powerful, military, strongest guy in the Earth, at that time, gets humbled by God, and this is the realization that Nebuchadnezzar comes to about God's complete control. Daniel 4, verse 35, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, by the way, which is an awesome name, if he wasn't such a horrible figure in Scripture, I think that would be just a great name, Nebuchadnezzar, like to name your kid, but don't do that because he's... Anyway, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, Lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the most high and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. Verse 35. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay or meaning stop, none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Nebuchadnezzar got it right. God's control is exhaustive And complete. Now how does that square with the fact that at times he allows Satan to hinder us. And do far worse things than just hindering us from going back to a group of Christians that we wanted to encourage. I mean friends it gets far more severe than what's going on here in 1 Thessalonians in the history of the world. Certainly. So how do we square these things? Well we need to also say point number two here about God's control is that his control is mysterious often hidden to us his purposes are in that great love chapter that we often read in weddings 1st Corinthians chapter 13 verse 12 paul is speaking about how we see in a mirror dimly in other words we are finite people and even if we're christians even if god has regenerate, regenerated our minds and given us the eyes to see and behold christ we still are dealing with foggy lenses until we stand before him and see all things clearly. His control is mysterious. I'm so encouraged by this in Psalm 13, verse 1. In the same book of Psalms where it affirms God's utter control, like we read in Psalm 115, in that same, that same hymnal of God's people, Psalm 13, verse 1, it says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me. So friends, the call here is not for us to shut our mouth and not have anything that we wrestle with and not wonder where God is or why He's doing things the way. He, no. In the same song book of God's people, there is this confession that God is in complete control, and there's also this confession, God, where are you so it is a legitimate human emotion of the christian to say god i know you're in control but where are you and why are things happening the way they are that's legitimate because his control is hidden to us in this life and it's mysterious often but finally about his control is is it is always good listen to romans 8 this verse i'm sure that many of us know starting in verse 28. And let's not stop in verse 28, but let's continue through this, what the theologians call this golden chain. Romans 8, 28 through 30. And we know that for those... listen, just, just all right, step away for a second and just listen to this verse, maybe for the first time, like really listen to it and take in the unbelievable promises of it. And we know that for those who love God, that's Christians, all things work together for good. All things. Whether Satan hindered you going back to Thessalonica, Thessalonica, whether the doctor gave you a bad report, whether that guy gets elected for president, whether this organization does this, all things work together for good. Either that's true or nothing's true. For those who are called according to his purpose. Now let's keep going, verse 29. And he says here, he's going to get into this unstoppable work that God is doing in the life of every one of his children that he has brought back to life so that they can trust. Him. he says, this is happening. And Paul speaks about this, which is going on in current tense in our lives. He speaks about it as so sure and certain that he talks about it in the past tense. That's significant. Because Paul would flunk my mom's freshman English lit class, which I didn't, by the way, because she was my English teacher in high school, and I smoked that bad boy, because I'm not getting anything lower than A when your mom is your teacher, right? (laughs) And you can't write these things because they're not they're not possible in time unless they're inspired by the holy spirit who is speaking about a reality that is in the future but it is so certain that he speaks about it like it's past tense so listen to verse 29 for those whom he foreknew the word there means for love. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So what he's saying is there's this unstoppable movement. Those that he's made Christians, he has purposed to make you like Jesus in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Verse 30, listen to this. It's in the past tense. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Okay, so we can conceptually see, okay, that was in the past, right? God predestined him I could call And those whom he called, he also justified. Okay, so he justified me. I can remember when that happened, when I became a Christian. But listen to this. And those whom he justified, he also glorified past tense. I don't feel very glorified most of the time. In fact, I don't feel particularly glorified right now. I got a little, just a little angst in me. I don't know what it is. But God says that his work in me is so certain that I am already who I'm in the process of becoming, and it is so certain that no matter what happens to me, come hell or high water, whether it's cancer or war or distress or affliction or whatever Satan throws at me, what is so certain and so sure is that I will see him that day face to face, and everything, friends, everything, all things will work together for the good of his people. How does that happen? i don 't know but we see it in god 's word here 's the question before we say a few things about what our response should be is I, I know I, look I, I know I come across strong sometimes i know I know and i don't i don 't mean to be so strong and emotional so as to um, Uh, like, pressure you into uh, subsuming any, like, um, objection or question that you may have, right? So just chalk that up to my personality. I'm just, that's kind of the way I was built. I just, I get excited, right? But the force with which I see these things and I speak these things, I don't mean that to then make you think that any Objection or question that you may have is not legitimate because there, there are, I think, things that we are called to wrestle with. There's questions that I even have in my own heart. Like, I think the question is, if God is good, then why would He allow fill in the blank? Like, whatever horrible thing that's going on in the world, right? I mean, cer- certainly those of us that were on the internet this week saw this horrible conversation taped by this medical director of Planned Parenthood speaking so casually about the body parts of um, aborted babies. And so, like, we can say, okay, God, I, I mean, all right, Satan hindered Paul from going back to Thessalonia. I mean, inconvenient, but not that big. All right, I, I didn't get the job. That stinks. But what about, like, these really wicked things? That's when it gets hard, right? So I think that's a legitimate question. If God is good, why would he allow this horrible atrocity? And friends, that's where we need to just say, look, that's where we need to be tenderhearted and gentle with one another. And I, I need to say to you, if that's your objection, like, I know, like, I know. Like, I feel that. I feel that. I, I feel that. And I think that the, the Bible points us to an answer in, in Romans chapter 9. And let me just read from Romans chapter 9. It gives us, a, I think, a glimpse, not doesn't answer every objection but it gives us this picture of God's eternal purposes and even allowing evil in the universe verse, let me start in verse 21, Romans 9 has the potter no right, and friends I know these verses are hard I'm not like throwing these out there some, you know just cranky Calvinist you know, that's not, it's not my heart verse 21 has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for dishonorable use and another or one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use what if god desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order, verse 23, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. So, what, what I think this verse is orienting us to is that God has deemed that allowing creation to just kind of go along unfallen is less glorious than creating creation, letting it fall and then rescuing a great multitude of people out of that fallen rebellion so that the gap between his grace and mercy and the fallenness of humanity would be greater and be on more display. Now, your objection to that may be, but he's God. Couldn't he have done it another way without all the pain? And my answer to that would be, yes, like, yes, but he hasn't, friend. He hasn't. There is evil. There is Satan. There is the fall. There is rebellion. And God is over it. And, and we need to realize that we see the world through our limited, finite, 80 and 90 year sin tainted, glasses, and there is a reality. There are purposes. I mean, friends, the gap between me and my children and when I say no to them, things that they just don't understand, that we all realize that when, when we become adults, we realize why things, why our parents did things. Friends, we see that truth, and on an infinitely greater scale, God is doing things that we can't understand that humble us and break our hearts, and we we, we, we even cry out against, but friends, my only answer is yes. I'm like, I'm with you, but that's the way things are. And so somehow God has a purpose in it. Do you see that? Like right now, like I guess personally, take the thing, take the thing that you're wrestling with most. And what are your options? Your options are to chalk it up to the randomness of the universe or your options are to chalk it up to God who's out of control, who's battling against evil in that moment, and it, it may go badly for you, and God's purpose was squandered in that, or I think the biblical, and really the only alternative, even though we can't understand and fill in all the blanks, is that somehow, like some way, God is doing whatever that is, and he is working it out, and to see it this way rightly, we need to realize that there is something and greater than 80 or 90 years on this earth comfort free. Because if we've made an idol out of this life, we'll never be able to press into the realities of the next life. That's the best I can do for you on that. There was this man named William Cooper who was a hymn writer. He was a dear friend of John Newton's. And if you Google him, his name is spelled Cowper, but it was pronounced Cooper. Suffered from severe mental disorder. He was really bedridden for the last decade of his life, cared cared for by John Newton, and he wrote this song, poem, that we have, I think, incorrectly taken as a flippant sort of phrase in our culture about how God works in a mysterious way. And one of the verses in that song says, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. And I have held on to that many a dark hour. So let's wrap it up with our response. What should our response be? Two quick thoughts, we should be obedient. I have gotten into woodworking over the last um, year or so, and it's been a real joy. My son has as well. I like big power tools that chop things and screw them and make noise. He's much more skilled and into chiseling and doing all that stuff, but it's made me think about just the imagery of, of a carpenter. Imagine if we were apprentices in a master carpenter shop and the master carpenter gave us the task to build a table. And we said, because this master carpenter was all-powerful and he had all the skill, we said, mm, well, you, you can do it. Why don't, why don't you do it? Right? <laughs> We'd lose our job. We'd get fired, Right? But isn't that when we see, like when we look at God's utter control? Don't we say, well, you can do it, you do it. But notice Paul's attitude. It's like he sees God as big and great and glorious and all powerful and sovereign. But he doesn't stay up in the clouds saying, well, if that's the case, then God, you do it. He doesn't stay up there 30,000 feet above the earth only in a doctrinal category. He jumps out of the airplane with his parachute and he lands on the ground and he gets in the mess of things and he fights. He knows God is sovereign and he knows that Satan is his foe and he knows that in the end, God will conquer and vanquish all evil. But he sees his mission as part of the means by which God is ordained to bring about his sovereign end. And Paul doesn't stand up there with his hands folded on the sidelines saying well God if you're going to build a table why don't you just build it? He he hears the master carpenter saying go get the wrench man go get the hammer and pound that nail into that piece of wood and go and fight and pray and preach and live and resist temptation and do it and be obedient. Who are we that we can sit back with our arms folded and say well God if you're sovereign you're just going to do what you're going to do. The arrogance and the hubris of that is shocking and I see it in my own soul and then finally I think our response is that we should be confident well this is where I want to put steel and I end with this John Calvin the great theologian of the Reformation wrote a book called the Institutes of Christian Religion and in one of his books embedded in that great book he speaks about providence listen to this it's a lengthy quote but i think i pray you'll be helped by it and this is john calvin's view of how the right view of god's providence helps the believer but when once the light of divine providence has illumined the believer's soul he is relieved and set free not only from the extreme fear and anxiety which formerly oppressed him but from all care, and let me just insert it in. I say, John, I appreciate your confidence. I'm not quite there yet. Like, <laughs> I'm not free from all care just yet. But thank you for, thank you for your optimism. For as he justly shudders at the idea of chance, so he can confidently commit himself to God. This, I say, is his comfort, that his heavenly Father so embraces all things under His power so governs them at will by his nod, so regulates them by his wisdom, that nothing takes place save according to his appointment. That received into his favor and entrusted to the care of his angels, neither fire nor water nor sword can do him harm, except in so far as God, their master, is pleased to permit. He goes on. But when they call to mind that the devil and the whole train of the ungodly are in all directions held in by the hand of God as with a bridle so that they can neither conceive any mischief nor plan what they have conceived nor how much soever they have planned move a single finger to perpetrate unless insofar as he permits remember Job had to ask nay unless insofar as he commands that they are not only bound by his fetters but are even forced to do him service when the ungodly think of all these things <laughs> they have ample sources of consolation oh. in one word Not to dwell longer on this. Give heed and you will at once perceive that ignorance of providence is the greatest of all miseries and the knowledge of it the highest happiness. And friends, we see this no more clearly displayed than in the crucifixion of the Son of God. When evil thought it was triumphing, something far more heinous than cancer, something far more heinous than Planned Parenthood's evil, murderous activity, something far worse than the Holocaust, or Stalin or Mussolini, something far worse than Al-Qaeda, was the crucifixion of the infinitely holy Son of God on the cross. And what was going on on that cross is that Jesus was bearing the weight of the sin of anybody that would ever turn from trusting in him. He was bearing God's punishment. And he was removing it. And then he defeated that greatest of all evils by rising again in victory over it and conquering death in the grave. And friends, that is what you need to see in all of this. You need to see that your only hope is a God who has allowed evil... And has allowed sin and has conquered it through the death and resurrection of his son. And if you are not trusting in Christ, you must do that right now. Look away from yourself. Look away from your own righteousness, which is like filthy rags before God. And trust in the God who conquered evil on the cross by laying down his own life and taking it up again. Do that even now, friend. And dear Christian friend, be emboldened by that. Let's pray. Lord, I confess there are many, many, many unanswered questions and things about these truths that perplex me and at times even confuse me. But in all of that, you call us to faith. And faith is not the snuffing out of every objection or the weeding out of all questions or doubts. It is looking and seeing and seizing and trusting in the object of our faith, despite and in the midst of, while we are surrounded by all of those things. And so we ask you now to give us eyes to behold Christ. And that he would be, as Calvin said, an ample source of consolation for us. But I pray that you do this for your glory and our joy. And by your Holy Spirit, take my weak words and fill in a thousand blanks and do your work, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.